Good morning, everyone. It is such a joy to get to sing and to worship with you, our great king who's on his throne, and now we get to open his word together. Uh, so please turn with me to Psalm 23, a little Exodus fake out, um, but we are in our second week, our final week of a little two-part study of Psalm chapter 23. Um, this really came out of the overflow of things that the Lord was teaching me over sabbatical. And we are looking at the love and the presence of Christ as our good shepherd. And so last week, we looked at his love and his care for us, those who have placed their trust in Christ and have been joined to him by his covenant love. And this week, we're going to be looking at his presence and in a real way, this sets up beautifully our study of the law because all of the Christian life really flows out of meditating and believing on the love of God in Christ. We know that we love him because he first loves us, right? That he loved us at the cross and drew us to himself and in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave us Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. But John teaches us in his first letter that our life flows out of that, that if he loved us, then Jesus said we ought to obey his commandments and we also ought to love one another. And so meditating on God's love is a great way to set the table for our study of God's good law in obeying him in all of life. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, um, turn to Psalm 23 and let's stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Most of you probably know parts of this or all of it by heart, um, but let's read together now. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Lord, it is so glorious that this song exists and that it's true and that it can be in the mouths of children just as much as in the oldest saint, and we can know that your goodness and your mercy will attend to us all the days of our life until you bring us safely home. I pray that you would come and minister to your people by your word, that you would prepare our hearts to be fertile soil for the word to come and to take root and to bear fruit in our lives as we walk humbly with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I read a story this week in Mark Buchanan's The Rest of God about his wife's grandmother. Uh, she lived in that 
period of the 20th century. I think it's where the San Francisco 49ers uh, get their name from, from the gold rush that happened when people were going out west in order to find, in effect, Aladdin's cave, right? They were going to mine for gold and everybody was going to strike it rich by all their discoveries. And so in this area of British Columbia where she lived, people would travel through on their way to the Yukon in search of gold. And some people found it in her province. And so one day, she's going out to her garden, and she had this very large rock in her backyard, and it was immovable, so she figured she might as well polish it up and make it look better. It could be the centerpiece of this garden. Um, She sounds like she might be about as much of a landscaper as me. Uh, So she sets to work polishing this stone, trying to shape it up and give it a little shine. So as she's sanding it, all of a sudden, she sees these gold flecks on the stone. And she all of a sudden is like, I I think probably before that moment, never really got what all the to-do was with all the people rushing in search for gold. But now she caught the fever, right? She started leaning all of her weight into sanding this rock as hard as she could. And sure enough, as she was sanding it harder and harder, more gold filings began to appear. So she takes a step back to catch a breather, and she goes to wipe her brow. And that's when she notices that something feels off about her wedding band. And so she turns over her palm, and sure enough, on the top, it just looked just like normal. But when she flips over to her hand, the bottom of her wedding band is about as thin as a wire. And she realizes to her horror that what had actually happened was that she had sanded away her wedding band. And the gold flecks that she had discovered on the rock were actually part of her wedding band that had come off in her feverish search for gold inside the rock that wasn't there. And I couldn't help but think as we read of this. So what happened is in her feverish desire to gain what she did not have, she failed to protect and treasure what she already possessed. And as I heard that story, it's sad. I told it to Kayla. She's like, man, I thought that she was going to like strike it rich. (laughs) Like that was going to end in her like finding the equivalent of the lottery in her backyard, and instead she just uh, sanded down her wedding band that you can't replace. As I read that story, I thought, man, this happens to believers so much that in our search of peace and joy or satisfaction out there, we end up eroding the peace and joy that are already ours in Christ. And we spend these moments in anxious toil looking for a peace and a satisfaction that could be enjoyed by us if we realize the treasure that we already possess in Christ. And so the question is, is searching for peace in life out there only erodes the peace and the joy that we're to experience as believers, then how do we cultivate and live in the peace and the joy that God has for us? And so we're going to go back to our main point that was kind of our banner over this two-part message out of Psalm 23. And this main point, if you have like one major takeaway that we're unpacking together over two weeks, is that knowing and believing the love and the presence of Jesus as our good shepherd leads to a life of joy and peace. Now, this is very important, knowing and believing And so last week we looked a lot at 
Jesus' love and care for us as our good shepherd. You need to know it and you need to believe it. This week we're diving further into his care for us by his presence in our lives. And so we're going to look at the back half of this psalm at the presence of Christ as our good shepherd. And then we're going to seek to bring it all the way home into how do we know and believe this in our daily experience so that we don't end up eroding away this treasure that we possess. So first, let's go to verse 4. And we're going to see that we receive comfort from Jesus' authority and presence. We receive comfort from his authority and his presence. The psalmist writes in verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We should notice first that this song goes from the psalmist singing about God and it turns into a prayer to God. So in the first three verses, he's talking about God in this third person. He's not directing, he's not directing his song at God. He's saying, the Lord is my shepherd. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. But as soon as he starts talking about this valley of the shadow of death, it becomes a prayer to God. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. This is actually one of the effects of the valleys, is that God will use them to turn our hearts to him and to address our prayer and our song to the Lord. We said this last week, but it's important for us to remember that as he guides us in paths of righteousness for his namesake, he will lead you into valleys of darkness. And this is hugely encouraging if you're in a valley of darkness right now and you think, I got here because something is wrong with me. I got into this suffering because I did something wrong. I took a wrong turn. That is not what David is describing here. This is not a sheep that got lost in a valley and then Jesus, as the good shepherd, goes out to find the sheep. We know that he does that with lost sheep, but that is not what is being described here. This is the good shepherd leading his sheep onward, and the path of righteousness goes right through trial and suffering, and eventually, for all of his people, actual death. It's important for us to know that the dark valley is not the destination. When when I was in Colorado recently, there's huge mountains, and I, I'd never even seen this before, where the sun's setting and you see these rays that are just climbing over the mountain, just casting these huge shadows. And there were some towns that were just completely covered in shadow, and for them, the sun set way earlier than the sun would set in other places. But the shadow can only be cast where there is light beyond. And so that's incredibly hopeful when you're in the shadow and all it feels like is darkness. But shadows are only cast where there is light. And for believers who are in Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ, every traveling in the valley of darkness is a travel through the valley of darkness. He does not lead us there to leave us. And it's incredibly important for us to know and remember, not just... There have been devastating 
valleys of the shadow of death just in this church. There are people who are traversing these shadows right now. And then there are also lighter shadows, shadows that are just your everyday. I asked you last week, what's your source of everyday anxiety, right? These are not just the worst moments of your life, but just what causes you that low-grade nagging anxiety in your daily life. Those are shadows that we could fear what is evil, the bad things happening, or, or your plans being frustrated, God not moving at the pace that you wanted him to, and it feels like you're traveling through a valley of darkness of some shade or variety. And I want you to see from the shepherd, because he's the one leading, that going through the valley is needful. He knows what you need. He knows how to save you. And, and he's actively saving you. He, this is so important to know about his heart. He does not lead his people aimlessly. He does not have an accident. And so it can be from something that may seem little to somebody else, but to you it's huge. One example from our life recently is Kayla not being able to sleep at night. And she has to wake up and go through a full day and homeschool six children while there's a toddler and a baby that need her and a house to run. And she's doing it on no sleep. And she's crying out to God, please give me sleep. And he says, trust me. If it was good for her to have sleep in those moments, even though she's desperate for it, then he would give it to her. But he is teaching her. Now, she's had some great sleep the last couple of nights. Praise the Lord. Thank you for praying for her. That is one example of, and probably to you, if you're going through a dark valley, a, a strange one. But I'm saying from everything from sleepless nights to on the brink of your death or a death of a loved one that you, uh, that you feel like the Lord is taking too soon, that he never leads his people aimlessly, and he is actively taking you to the light beyond the shadow. He's actually leading you to higher grounds. And the, and the road travels through the valley. So on that same trip to Colorado, we drove a car to the top of Pikes Peak because um, we didn't have time to hike it. And honestly, it's 14,000 feet. So it was great to drive. And that road was windy. And a lot of places without a guardrail, and I wasn't driving, I have control issues. So there, I, I was anxious, right? Um, I, I, I told my brother-in-law, I was like, I do not trust you, and this handle will do nothing if you actually go over this uh, cliff. So that road is windy, and there are times when from just the car's orientation, you would feel like you were going backwards because you're doing this. But actually, every time it felt like the car was going backwards, we were actually going up. And in the same way, there are paths in life that go through valleys, but he's actually bringing you forward, ahead in the journey of Christ-likeness and sanctification. He's giving you more of himself. And you need to know this, that one of our great hopes and confidences as a believer is that there is no path of suffering or trial or temptation that you will walk that Jesus has not walked first. And his promise to you is not just, I've walked this path before, but I have walked this path before and I am with you. The promise of his presence is 
always God's answer to our fears. In God's word, the promise of his presence is always his answer to your very real fears. So don't miss this. The Bible doesn't offer trite relief for problems that aren't real. He's saying, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, the greatest fear of all mankind, the enemy has the world held captive because of their fear of death. And Jesus sets us free from the fear of death because the lamb has conquered and he is alive and on his throne. And because he lives, we will live also. So we have this great confidence that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of real death, we can fear no evil because Christ is overcome and he's with us. But if that promise is true for ultimate death, then it is true for every lesser death and lesser suffering as we trust in the presence of our good shepherd. Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, he had just finished telling them about him going away to the Father, and it's better that he goes away, and he's going to send the helper so that he will be with us and in us. And he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So the confidence of believers is that Jesus has already overcome in every situation that you could fear and that he is with us. This is He says, take courage because there's no fear that weighs more than his presence with us. And I want to take you to a couple of places where we see this truth played out in Scripture as God's, as we receive comfort from God in the midst of his authority and his presence. And so you can see it first in the Great Commission. This is his promise as he leaves his church with this mission of going and teaching everyone everywhere to obey Jesus and everything. And he tells us, as the bookends of that command and promise, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and I will be with you always. So there's nothing that you're going to encounter that I am not sovereign over and in charge of, and I'm going to be with you, and so go and obey, and go teach them to obey. And I'm going to be with you in this mission. There's three other examples I want to touch on briefly um, from our study of Exodus and from our Bible reading plan together. And then one that was too delicious to pass up from Isaiah. So we saw this earlier in our study of Exodus when Moses is responding to God in the midst of not wanting to go to Pharaoh and command that he let God's people go. And he says, who am I that I should go? And what was God's response to him in Exodus 3 verse 12? But I will be with you. You, you have the wrong perspective, Moses. You're, you're focusing on who am I that I could go through this thing or that I could do this thing. And he says, you're, you're looking in the wrong direction. Who am I? And I will be with you. And then from our Bible reading plan this week. So if you're not with us, you can join us. We have um, a PDF or a printout that we can give to you where we're reading the Bible together in two years. And so this week we were, in, among other places, in Second Chronicles 32. And Hezekiah has this Assyrian army coming against him. There's 185,000 of them surrounding Jerusalem, threatening to destroy them, mocking God. And Hezekiah gathers all the people and it says he spoke encouragingly to them. And this is what he says. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed. That dismayed, you see this a lot in the scriptures where he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or dismayed. And 
We don't really say dismay a lot, so I was looking it up, and it means this to be terrified, like paralyzed with fear. And so he's saying, don't be paralyzed with fear before the king of Assyria and this horde that is with him, for there are more with us than with him. Now, numerically, that was just not true. If you were looking just physically with what you could see, but this is what he meant. He says, with him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people took confidence from the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So you can see it from our earlier study in Exodus chapter 3 with God uh, kind of responding to Moses's. Uh, he was trying to offer an excuse for why he couldn't go, and God comes over the top with the promise of his presence. And then here Hezekiah is giving a word from the Lord saying, there are more with us than with them because the Lord is on our side and he will fight for us. And then in Isaiah 43, verse 1 through 5, I want you to listen to this because it so parallels the kind of heart that is in Psalm 23 that is so personal towards you as believers. So if you need to close your eyes and lean in or whatever you have to do to really listen to this as a word from God to you in the midst of your fears. Here's Isaiah 43. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel. So this is God's word to his covenant people. Those who have come to Christ by grace through faith, this is his word to you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. And so this is the heart of Psalm 23. He loves us and cares for us. We are precious to him. He does not say that he will avoid every valley and darkness or fire and water but that he will be with us and that in the dark, he is there. He's teaching you to depend on him. Like Paul says, he, he brought us to the point of death in Asia, but that was to make us to learn that we should not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. And in the midst of the valley, he's giving you more of himself. This is one of the great nourishing truths that I read in Elizabeth Elliot's These Strange Ashes over the sabbatical. Kayla recommended it to me. And in her first year as a missionary, she ran into trial after trial, and then even her victories were, she translated a whole language so that they could have the Bible in that language, and then her translation work was stolen, and it was all for naught. Nine months of work, just completely stolen away. And she says, in response to that, it was a long time before I came to the realization that it is in our acceptance of what is given that God gives himself. And so it's like David says in, in, <clears throat> later in the Psalms, close to 130. He says, I've 
quieted myself within me. That this is what we must do before our good shepherd. In the, in the valley, when we're tempted to talk back, when we're tempted to find our own detour, when we're tempted to tell him that he's not good, or maybe we're tempted to believe that he's not with us, we need to quiet our souls and go to his word and trust him again and to cry out with all of our hearts, you are with me. I choose to believe that you are with me. So we receive comfort from his authority and presence. And second, we receive courage from his welcome. Comfort from his authority and his presence. And now from verse five, we receive courage from his welcome. He's already said that he will fear no evil in this valley. And David was pointing out earlier this week, evil just is a word that the Hebrew language uses for just anything bad that can happen to you. It's just anything bad. Um, And so it it could be an attack from demonic influences or it could be uh, any kind of suffering that is contrary to what you would perceive to be blessing and flourishing. And he's saying, I'm not going to fear any evil. And in verse 5, He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. So now in verse 5, this imagery of the shepherd and his sheep has been replaced by that of a host and hospitality. Now, instead of being a sheep in the pasture, you are a guest in the house. And Pastor David reminded us last week that King David, who penned this psalm, was no stranger to enemies, to being hunted. And I think if you just step back, I cannot imagine anything more stressful than that. Can you imagine, like Kayla said, it's not really the most encouraging thing to think about, like, well, it could be worse. But sometimes I do gain encouragement from that when I'm reading about David's life and I'm like, Man, there's sometimes we have it pretty rough, but at least I'm not being hunted by an egomaniacal ruler, you know, with trained assassins who are hot on my tail, right? And the Bible gives us these kinds of encouragement all the time uh, where the person singing or praying is in a circumstance that is so much more extreme than what I'm going through right now that you kind of know this covers the basis of where this promise can be claimed, right? If David can sing this way and trust God this way when trained assassins are hunting him, then surely I can sing the same song in the midst of what I'm going through. If he can sing this kind of song in the midst of committing a grave sin and experiencing God's forgiveness or in the aftermath of losing a child or fill in the blank. We have all these examples where the songs continue to go up and it wraps up our experiences. It says, go to the Lord and trust him. And so you see God preparing a feast for his servant even in the midst of enemies surrounding him and attacking him all around. David is at peace. That's one of the big things you can glean from You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I have had seasons, praise God, he's delivered me from it, but I used to have really debilitating anxiety in transition seasons. So from eighth grade to ninth grade, from senior year to freshman year of college, and then from um, after college into professional life, I would just have these kind of 
hatred of change in a way that would turn me green and I was just like didn't want to eat. I don't know if you've ever been that anxious where you just, food does not sound interesting to you. It kind of, you feel sick all the time. So you're like, I can't, I don't even want to think about eating. I just eat the minimum enough to survive and get by. David doesn't have that. I know this is a metaphor of preparing a table for him in the presence of his enemies. But he would not pin these lines if he's only desperately anxious and seeking deliverance. He is saying that he is safely hidden in the refuge of his good shepherd and that God has come to him to set out this covenant meal where he eats with God as his friend and he can eat in peace because he trusts him. That because Christ has already overcome the world in Jesus, we have victory. And so feasts are for celebration. You don't, you don't set out a feast because you hope you win. Feasts are for after you've already won and you set it out and you pour the wine and you say, let's rejoice. And so this is full of the hope of victory and the hope of the light on the other side of the shadow where you're saying, Jesus is my peace. But because his victory is so sure, I don't have to wait to eat it then. I can go ahead and taste the foretaste of it now, which is exactly why we go to the table week in and week out where we say, Jesus, the lamb has overcome. You have conquered sin and death. And no matter what I'm going through, I'm coming to this table by faith again to proclaim Christ has conquered and he is coming again. This is but a foretaste of the feast to come. But the victory will be no more sure in that day than it is today. And so we feast. It's a foretaste, but it's real. And all that is left is a further realization of his victory in our experience. And I want you to miss this third line from verse five. when he says, you anoint my head with oil. In Jewish culture, this anointing of the head with oil for a host and his guest was a gesture of welcome and honor. So in, in Luke chapter seven, you can see this where Jesus is a guest at the house and this woman has come to anoint his feet and she's um, anointing him with perfume and spices and the hosts are very offended and Jesus says to them, I, I came to your house and you did not anoint my head with oil, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointment. So you need to hear this. Here's the good shepherd laying out the feast, the assurance of his victory in the midst of enemies all around. And you are enjoying this covenant meal with him as his friend. And you need to see his heart in this. His anointing of your head with oil is a gesture of his glad-hearted welcome. That you're, we said last week, you are not lost in the sea of redeemed Christ, group of Christians where God has a covenant people and you're just getting a package deal. That he has laid out this table for you and you, you anoint my head with oil, right? He, just, he didn't just like scatter oil and like whoever's there gets it. He comes and he says, you're welcome here. Come to the table and dine. And so there's this courage that David has from knowing God's heart for me is one of welcome and honor, not because I'm deserving, but because he's deserving and he's pouring out the benefits of his own righteousness on me. But you're a welcomed guest at the table. And so, um, and we see this truth, Paul drives us home in Romans 15, verse 7, when he says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. We can go into a whole nother sermon on welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. But the truth remains, 
he has welcomed us. So I promise you, Paul is not saying, welcome each other begrudgingly with kind of a stingy welcome that's kind of sad that you're part of the deal. That's mainly disappointed that you're here, right? His heart is one of gladness, generous welcome by his own blood. When you are there and you're looking up all around saying, why do I get to experience all this goodness, all this forgiveness, all this peace, all this feast? Then you look up at the scars of Christ who paid for it for you and said, you are welcome here. I paid for you to have a place at the table. And so if you are in Christ, you don't merely survive the valley. He is and has made you more than a conqueror through him who has loved you. He is working every single thing together in your life for your good, for your salvation in Christ. And that is what we see in our last verse and third, that we receive confidence from his covenant love. Look at verse six. I don't know if you spent your whole life to try to come up with the most precious promise that you could think of. I don't think you could do better than this. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We talk about studying God's word and every word mattering. So God could have said, Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But he adds surely there on purpose because he wants you to know that this is as sure as his faithfulness, as sure as his promises are true. The word could be translated only. That for those who are in covenant with Christ, only God's goodness and his mercy will follow you all the days of your life. So I want you to step back and actually think of this. In everything, all the days of your life, all is all-encompassing. You can think back over this week, and you can think about your worst days, and you can think about your best days. And in every single one of them, God's goodness and his mercy were attending to you in ways that you could see and in ways that you couldn't see. But this word for follow me all the days of my life, it's not just like a loose following, you know, like, hey, I'm going to follow you there, but then... You kind of turn on GPS just in case, and it's not like a real following. This is God's goodness and his mercy pursuing you and hunting you down. That his, his mercy and his goodness are following you and pursuing you more than the enemies that surround you and are providing you with protection and peace, turning every single thing in your life into salvation. And for the believer in Jesus Christ, his goodness and his mercy are inescapable. You notice where the, which direction the pursuit is going? This is not saying you have to pursue God's goodness and his mercy all the days of your life or else you'll miss out on them. He's saying, my plan is good toward you. My goodness will follow you wherever you go. If you wander, I'll bring you back. If you stray, if you sin, I'll find you and forgive you. I am going to follow you all the days of your life until I bring you safely home. So this is what it means when the writer of Hebrews says that the Lord Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Uttermost means all the way, that he is saving you 
all the way home, all the way until you're completely like Christ, all the way until you are home in glory. So this is our hope as believers, that we have him now and you have him forever. The psalmist already writes, Moses writes, that God has been our dwelling place through all generations and one day soon we know that the dwelling place of God will be with us. And he will dwell with us and we will be his people and God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things will have passed away. So this is the hope and the confidence that we have in Christ that we know we have this confidence from his covenant love that he's brought us into his covenant and there's nothing that we can do to escape his love and his mercy as we humble ourselves before him and walk with him by faith in the fear of the Lord. And so how do we bring this home all the way to our daily life? Because my concern is that you have known these things and that just like the grandma in our illustration, there have been days in your life where you have completely eroded them away in search for the same love and peace and satisfaction somewhere else. That you're looking for an overflowing cup, not from God, but from the world, from your busyness, from your activity in the world, from money or provision or security or, or things being well-ordered or whatever it may be for you. How do I avoid sanding down my wedding band and forfeiting the peace and the joy that the presence of God has already, that already belongs to me in Christ? So this is our, our fourth and final point of our time together. We must choose faith full of joy and peace. You have to choose faith. Faith takes God at his word and believes, chooses to believe what God has said over what I can see and what I feel. And so I have to go to God's word and preach to my soul and remind myself that even though it looks like God is not with me, that he is with me in the valley of the shadow of death. I have to choose to fear no evil. This is not a song for people for whom holiness or righteousness comes easily. You have to choose by faith to sing these things. I choose again today to not fear what is around me. I choose instead to look to you and choose to believe that you are with me and that you love me and are for me, that this has not escaped you. So this is important to realize for your everyday life. I really believe that we are worried in our daily life to the extent that I'm not trusting God in that moment. So your anxiety and your trust in God are indirectly related. <laughs> it, that means when you're trusting God, your anxiety and your fears go down. And when I am walking in anxiety and fear, it's like a thermometer that lets me know, oh, I'm, I'm not choosing faith in this moment. I'm not going to God in this moment. Now, this is a daily battle. Some people will have to battle with this way more than others. 
But what so often happens with us is that we lack joy and peace because we're not trusting God and we're not looking to God. And then we go to broken cisterns that can never satisfy us to try to fill up what is lacking. And a lot of times it just looks like being so busy that you don't have to notice how empty you feel, the lack of joy that you have. I, in Kelly Capich's book, You're Only Human, he says, our current harried state, your busyness, obscures the Spirit's presence and deafens us to the divine benediction whispered to us throughout the day. I thought that was so profound because what he's saying is, in those moments, it is no less true that God is with you, that Jesus is your shepherd and that he's with you. And he is speaking this welcome to you throughout your day. He anoints your head with oil. You are welcome with him. He wants you to live for him and through him with him. But so often, even if you wake up in the morning and you devote the first part of your day to hearing from the Lord, we get up and we go into the day and busyness ensues and it crowds out your awareness of the presence of God. And essentially, it brings us away from the fear of the Lord because that is what the fear of the Lord is, walking before God, before his face, with a conscious awareness of his presence. I'm living my life before the face of God with God. And so I'm, I'm living by the strength that he supplies in a, in a way that honors him because I fear him because he's right here and I want to please him. I'm aware that he is with me. And so, how, how do we do this? Well, we know from this psalm that he restores our souls. He brings us into green pastures. And so we have to go, uh, use, I'll use the example of Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah writes there in verse 21, But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. You see the connection between that? He says, I'm actively choosing to call this to mind, and that is the reason why I have hope. The hope didn't come because he was just spiritual. He went to a promise of God and he called it to mind. And that was the source of his hope. This is what he called the mind. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so this has to become your daily practice where you are preaching the word of God to your own soul and calling truth to mind about his love and his presence. And that is where the joy and the peace will come from. It's as you, it's not just the truth, knowing the truth about the presence of God that brings you joy. And it's not just knowing the truth about the love of God that will bring you peace. It's knowing and believing them. Moment by moment. Not in general, but in your actual everyday lived minutes and hours where you are prone to anxiety or you're prone to a busyness that crowds out the presence of God. You have to quiet your soul within you and recall his truth to mind and therefore have hope and joy and peace. So I'm going to close with this example from Philippians chapter 4. 
verses four through seven. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. He writes that to us because it's a choice that you have to choose joy in the Lord. You have to do that by calling his truth to mind and choosing joy, choosing faith. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, people say that that could be the Lord's coming is at hand and he's about to return to dwell again upon the earth and bring his kingdom here at hand. We know he says he's coming soon, so it could be that. But it's also he's, he's near. He's right at hand. He's here. And so what should we do? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So it's almost as if he's saying his goodness and his mercy will follow you all the days of your life. But we don't just passively read that and say, praise God. We say, I will choose to believe it and I'm going to rejoice. And when I feel anxious, for you it could look like this. God, I'm looking to you. Lord, I feel anxious. There are circumstances in my life that I cannot control. And everything feels overwhelming all around me. And I'm prone to anxiety and fear. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. Or I'm afraid that I'm not enough for what faces me because fill in the blank for you but you are sufficient for all of this and you are in control I choose to believe that you are my good shepherd that you love me and that you are with me and for me you are loving me leading me saving me even if I can't see a sign of your hand in this moment I believe that you're with me and that you are leading me up from these shadows Teach me while I'm here. Feed me on good pasture and let me drink from the rivers of your delight in the valley while I wait on you. I'm looking to you and I'm choosing to rejoice because I believe that your goodness and your mercy will follow me and are following me right now all the days of my life. So I want to close in prayer and we'd be remiss not to say that if you have never come to Christ in humble repentance and faith, then you are not a sheep of his pasture. But he, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone hears my voice, let him come in to me and find pasture. And so there is salvation and life and joy and peace that are found in turning from your sin and placing your trust in Christ. But for those who are in Christ and who are called by his name, Let's not be found sanding away our wedding bands, having the joy and the peace that come from being found in Christ only to look for it elsewhere. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you. You are the great shepherd of the sheep. We thank you that you are, are our good shepherd and that 
you feed us and care for us and protect us and love us and that you have promised you will never leave us or forsake us, never. That even now you prepare a feast for us in the presence of our enemies, in the presence of trouble, in the valley of deep, deep darkness, even on the brink of death, we can actually have joy and peace in those moments because you are with us and you are the one who fills our cup. You are our portion. We believe that your goodness and your mercy will follow us all the days of our life and that soon we will dwell in your house forever. So help us to trust you all the days of our life, every day, every kind of day, the good days, the bad days, the suffering, the trials, the joys, the feasts. Please, Lord Jesus, we want to choose to rejoice. We want to believe that you are with us and trust your heart. Even when we can't understand our circumstances, give our church faith to take you at your word and to choose to trust you. May the God of hope fill all of us with joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. Amen.